Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. And we are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. Yeah. And uh, this episode, we want to talk about seller side financing, at least one of the topics that we use on all of our deals. And I thought it'd be a good topic to talk about just because before knowing Colin, I don't think I knew A, that this existed and B, that it was so commonplace, that it was like an established thing. So just for reference, we've use seller-side financing on all of our deals, we plan on continuing to do it. And it, it, it's kind of a unnecessary part of our deal. And now that we, we do do it, it's, it ensures, at least to me, that if we need to find a lost password within the first year or so of owning a business, we still have somebody involved that can, can help us track that down or, or whatever. Usually it's the errant S3 bucket that is still being linked to in the emails or the marketing materials or something crazy. But uh, I'm curious, like, how did, is this something that you found in, in business school, you just knew about it. So going all the way back to business school, like I was in, it was like private equity and venture capital lab. And they actually divide you up and they throw you in different rooms and they like rarely combine you. But I like sat in on a PE room once. It's like, holy shit, you could buy a company with its own profits. Like yeah. that sounds way better. Like most of our stuff is going to zero in venture capital. But yeah, never really put too much thought into it. Never really took those classes. But I, I took some notes here as far as like buckets to like structure our conversation. So how does it work? Why do we do it as a buyer? Why a seller would want to do it? And then a downside to the seller. Yeah. So like just at a high level, I think we covered this a few times in different variations in the past, but how it works is not that different than like a mortgage or something, but you know, houses aren't, unless they're like short-term rentals, aren't a profitable thing, but it's like you buy something up front, you have some upfront money, and then you pay off the rest over time. So instead of a lump sum, you spread it over time, over a number of years with a down payment, and then there's different terms. There's the down payment, the interest rate, the term as in like duration, and then collateral is another mechanism to go up and down. Yeah. And like we, I guess when we look at this, it's like, we don't, tip, I know we've never tied anything to like the performance of the business because if you're selling, I mean, unless you're making some guarantee about, hey, these clients are never going to leave. Do you know, is it, is it common that people don't tie anything to performance because the seller is leaving or is are there usually like a clawback here for like, oh, well, you're warranting that this is going to stay at a certain run rate or certain employees are going to stay. And if not, I got, got to claw that money back is do people use seller financing for that? Or is it different? So I have, it's in my course, there's like a million flavors of this, like an earnout is see. a traditional one where it's like based on the performance of the business. The version that we do is generally just like almost like just a payment structure. So we're just going to pay you in some period of time and it's not contingent on the business, but it's worth talking about like why you do it as a buyer. So one thing you kind of said is a vested seller interest. So the mm -hmm. seller has a reason to reply to your email and tell you passwords because if the business just fails, there's no money to come collect later. So that's not great yeah. for them. Juice returns is an obvious one. You don't need as much money up front to invest and to buy the company. So you could pay off some or all the profits, all the seller financing with the profits. There's also inflation, like pretty extreme inflation going on right now. So like money we have to pay in the future isn't actually as valuable as it is today. And then protection yeah. is another you know, big one beyond like them just replying to our emails, which is nice, but you can structure it so you could claw back some of the money if like reps and warranties are violated, if they lied to you somehow, like at least you have that money outstanding, you could come or you can make mm -hmm. it contingent on some things like clients don't leave for 90 days, six months, one year, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we've found good alignment with our sellers around it. And, and I think it's, 
it does put us both on sort of like the team. I, it's something that sellers always say. They're like, oh, we're happy that you're taking the baby and going to grow it and, and it's going to be in good hands. But this almost like puts the money where the mouth is a little bit where it's like, ha, that it sound, it's like, are you paying lip service and just saying that to make us feel good? Or do you really believe in us? And it's a kind of feels like a little bit of an investment. I mean, there's definitely putting a little skin in the game to also to get a, a purchase price that they want, right? Like that, let's be clear. I think this helps us get to a, not that we're, we're overpaying, but like getting to bridging gaps between valuations. Sometimes it's like, okay, we can, we can maybe stretch if we don't have to come up with the cash right away, or we can pull it from the business over time. It's like, I like to make deals that everyone's happy with. Like that's my philosophy around this. And that is a great tool for us to, to get there is my feeling. Yeah. So price and terms are like two different levers. So you could, you could have the highest price possible, but you know, you're going to get screwed on terms. You're going to pay it out over time, or you could have the best terms possible. You have hundred percent of the money up front, but you're not going to get as much money. And so occasionally mm-hmm. you talk to founders and it's like, I want the max money and I want it all up front. It's like, well, those are kind of opposing yeah. things there, but the biggest reason to do it for the why the seller, it's a higher sale price. So you get more money if you spread it out. And then it also like related to that, it wildly opens up like a larger buyer pool. I think the hardest thing as a seller is really to find like the right buyer and mm-hmm. the right buyer plus like having hundred percent of the capital up front is a really hard combo to find. So if you could, if you're confident in the quality of the business, you're confident you could pay off some seller financing, you could kind of share in the future profits of the business and find the right buyer. It's also yeah. one more thing is it's tax advantaged. So you're basically spreading out the tax hit over a number of years, which is beneficial. Very cool. Very um, cool. I mean, when it comes to the seller jumping into the seller kind of downsides, I know there are a couple other things you want to talk about, but that's probably the biggest one as a seller to think about is like you're you're guaranteeing, not guaranteeing, but you're underwriting a loan, right? You're basically, yeah, it's it's financing, right? So I would say the biggest thing that at least within our experience that I think is advisable for sellers to do is due diligence on on the buyers and like talk to other people that they've done seller side financing with. I think that's probably the easiest thing you can do is just ask for, give me a reference or two of people that you've done this with before. Make sure they've been paid. Beyond that, maybe even like track record credit check. I don't know. I mean, you, you definitely, I, I don't see a lot of buyer diligence. Maybe some brokers do that. Maybe some better brokers than we work with, but, but that would definitely, if I was a seller, that those would be my first steps. Yeah. So that increased risk is by far the biggest downside. And like, it really depends who your buyer is. So the best case is a serial acquirer with experience in like the asset class before. So like us in software, we bought it before we paid off seller financing before we plan on buying like many more software companies in the future. And so like screwing someone is not, and not a great way to build your reputation, <laughs> but like, this is definitely a thing in search funds. So your goal is you pop out of nowhere, your goal is to buy one company and then you disappear again. And if you don't have experience, like in that asset class before you've never run a software company, like there's, there's definitely some chance you run it into the ground. Yeah. And so that would be viewed as significantly more risky. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine that's something you're going to have to assess as a seller. Collateral is is an interesting topic around this is like the business essentially becomes the collateral, right? It's like if you default, I guess it depends on the terms you agree to, but the business can be a lien. Yeah. What are the other collateral options that you have? I guess it could yeah, be anything. I, I'm not an expert on this like UCC lien, but it's basically like your first priority to get paid back if something happens or whatever in the business. Other way is like, 
So we've signed promissory notes in the past where it's like, if we default, you don't even have to go to court is my understanding. They just get that percent of the business back. Yeah. So that's like a pretty clean one. But I think the reality with all this stuff or most of it, with the exception of that, like weird pre-signed promissory note is like, you're going to go to court anytime you have to like enforce a disagreement in a contract. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's like, you could do a million different contingencies, but it's not something, I don't know. I haven't put a ton of thought into like a situation where we don't end up paying. It's not something I ever really, I plan on like, I think we will grow effectively every company we ever buy. Not that concerned about failing to pay one in the future. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think like the, the collateral side of this is like, to me as a buyer, as on the flip side of the collateral, it's like, you're representing that with you at the helm, this business is doing well. And you're kind of, it's a, it's a showing to the buyer that like you have confidence that it's going to, it's going to be fine. Like if you're really saying, I don't check support, it's two hours a month that I do anything and it's growing like, right. Great. Like then you should have no problem doing some seller side financing and holding some of this back to, to see how it goes for you. I mean, then again, you're selling the business, right? So from a, I can see the buyer's perspective where maybe it's, it's like, Hey, I just want to cash out. And the, I, I keep going back to that's where we're purchase price, like that end price. Like you can really juice that price, get more money in your pocket in a more tax efficient way by, by doing this, which is why a, I was kind of blown away by the commonplace, how commonplace this is. It's like, it's, it's, it's a good thing. I feel like it's a pretty healthy thing to add into a deal. Yeah. So you kind of alluded to it, but it's not a hundred percent like a clean break. If you're like hoping a waltz onto the beach and never talk to those guys again, it's not a great recipe to do that. But for us as buyers, like I would expect us to always have seller side financing. Like, I don't know what market is exactly, but probably 20, 30 plus percent is pretty standard for any deal of like any kind of real size. For really small stuff, small like Chrome plugins or something, you just wire the 20K over or something. There's no seller financing, but six figures and up is always seller financing. And I would view it as like a pretty big red flag to be like, oh no, I don't want, I want all that money up front. Best of luck to you guys. That is unless you, if you had a competing offer, like, cause I, then I think it's, we, we talked about this on a prior podcast, but we, we lost a deal to like a constellation software, like a, a, a Goliath player in the space where it's like, they can cut a check for 4 million without batting an eyelash, right? It's like no big deal. And it's really easy for them to, and that probably is a reason why they're easy to close, right? So it's like fast forward, let's say five years from now, and we're able to deploy a similar amount of capital. I wonder if we'll see, feel the same way. I, I feel the same way. I think I will, right? Like, cause it's, Hey, this is a healthy thing to have there. It's like aligning incentives. We're not going to get stuck with a kind of a, a lemon, so to speak, or in a situation where it's so funny, especially with technology, like how important a little piece of information might be to us. Six months down the line, we run into something and it's like, hey, are you aware of this? Or do you know anything about it? Do you know the history behind it? And it's a 10-year-old code base. And it's like, that could save you easily $100,000 of development time, software, whatever it is. Of just like, no, 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 don't go down that path. We were down there. And it's like, I obviously you want to uncover that within like the 30 days of diligence or whatever. But I mean, on certain projects, that's just not going to be feasible. So it's like, Combining a fast close with no fu- seller financing and an old code base or an old product, like it just seems a little reckless. Yeah, it, it is quite rare. I guess if you have a big, like ESW will do this, you just show up with like a truckload of cash and be like, hey, you have 24 hours. Are you in or are you out? 
it's like, yeah, I guess you probably get some great deals if you just do a hundred percent of cash up front. Yeah. That's one other way to approach it. Yeah. Hey, you're going to have some, some bumps along that road, but I guess that's just a, a different playbook, but I, I dig it. It's, it's an interesting way to just be like, here's your money, go to the beach, like go enjoy, do something else with your life. Like you, you've done it. You've reached the top of the mountain. Here's your check. I was reading about this real estate guy who he puts a hundred thousand dollars in an account. He looks at some building and he really likes it, does all his diligence up front. And then he offers some amount that he thinks is fair and low. And he says, if you sign this, you could go get that hundred thousand cash today. And just that like hundred thousand upfront is like, even on a multi-million dollar deal is really impactful yeah. to people. Not our approach, but something to think about. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, it's like, Hey, you can go buy yourself something nice, maybe a nice watch. I, I don't know what hundred K buys you these days. I was about to say a Porsche or something, but not really like it's, it's still either way. I think that it's nice to see the cash. Maybe that's something we need to include in our offers is sure. There's going to be some seller side financing, but here's a, yeah, a briefcase full of unmarked. Yeah, truly. Speaking of flying, you were you were in Austin recently, right? You were you were visiting. Yeah, so my wife's finishing up her fellowship. She's a pediatric neurologist, so she's interviewing at different folk, uh, different places. This was an interesting one. So they do like the, all the doctor interviews, and but then they take you to dinner, like more as a culture mm. fit, which I think is actually a big deal. But they were playing it down; it's not a big deal. And the effectively like the head doctor. This is a unique situation where. They used to work at UT Austin. It was like eight pediatric neurologists. They wanted more mm. freedom to kind of run how they wanted to run. So they spun out of UT Austin and started like a competing clinic. And then it became multiple competing clinics. So then they were doing, it was really nice for the doctors, like one-to-one -one nurse to doctor. So instead of sharing a nurse, nice. you have your own. So it's less work. And then they have fewer call shifts. So call shifts, there's all this like slang and doctor world. Oh no, yeah. Uh, call it, shifts are working I'm familiar with it. Um, so they like work half as many nights as most other clinics and um, holidays where, you know, you can't, you can't leave. Like you have to be ready to hop back into an emergency, right? You, you, you have your days on hold on your own call. Yeah. And so like doing that for one month out of the year versus like two months out of the year is a pretty big difference. But what was interesting is they did this. I don't know when they started it, maybe like eight years ago, 10 years ago. And Austin's mm -hmm. been booming and they made a decision to sell like three years ago. And so it was calling her a CEO is not right, but like the business manager, like the real owners are the doctors, but she's like the business manager. And I was like, why, why do you guys choose to sell? Like it's, what was the deal? Like, what were the big expenses running as independent? And the largest problem is benefits. Benefits are super expensive to pay hmm. across doctors. And then she's saying the IT and tech and like getting that all set up and paying is really expensive. And her last one was doctor salaries, but I'm not really sure that changes whether you're a bigger yeah. practice or a smaller one. And then, hmm. so they sold to effectively a roll-up. So they're rolling up pediatric neurology clinics like throughout the US. And why they did it, it's Austin is like a great growing market, but they saw a bunch of other competitors coming in with like way bigger hmm. balance sheets that were going to be throwing more money around. So it's not, it's kind of like us, like, do you want to be competing against a VC back Goliath or you want to be in kind of a sleepy corner? And so it's great yeah. if you're like, you're riding the wave, but until someone much bigger comes and kind of wipes you out. Yeah. So, yeah. They did an all cash deal, no equity. They all seem very happy about the whole thing. I'm sure equity would have been more lucrative, but I bet the roll-up didn't want to provide it. Interesting. Yeah. So did they still get that, like, are they still able to do the flexibility of the call hours or is it 
that's out the window? Yeah, nothing has seemed to change. They still run independently. I didn't ask how they're compensated because they're like the senior doctors there, but I assume it's like a profit share situation. What was funny is sure. like, they're going to make Holly an offer and they were basically coaching her on how to negotiate because now they're negotiating against like the head office instead of their like amongst- No, the interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciated that. That was nice of them. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope it goes well. And are there other markets she's thinking of interviewing in or is it only down? I'm pretty high in Austin as far as like yeah. what we're doing is you know, software, private equity. That's like where the big boys play. And there's also a lot of bootstrap founders out there. So it's like SaaS companies, but more with a cash flow focus. So it's mm -hmm. probably one of the best like hotbeds for us as far as like deal sourcing as well. So I'm pretty yeah. high in Austin, but our family's in the Midwest. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, you can bump bump elbows with Joe Rogan and and whoever else has moved out. Cause a lot of Californians moved out there, right? It's oh, always yeah. like during a COVID. Yeah. It's also, yeah. Very cool. It's a tiny city. I mean, it's like, I don't know, St. Pete's Florida to me, like going around, you think it's like this big developed place. Cause people talk about yeah. all the time, but like even the nice areas, it's like, Oh, there's just a car like rotting in that yard over there. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not, not super well developed yet. Great food town though. I mean, it's, it's, if you're going from Chicago to Austin, I don't, you won't skip a beat, like great food. I haven't been there for, for years, but not, not even the barbecue scene. Cause that's, that's its own thing. And you gotta be kind of super into it, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a cool town. Hopefully it works out. Fingers yeah. crossed. I, I'm pretty high on it. One other thing, like I have a buddy who runs a large telemedicine company that he moved hmm. from Chicago to Austin. And so I was asking him, like, he's only been there three months, but he bought land there like three years ago or something. It's like, how has his experience been? So just like going through his feedback quickly is the heat was harder than he thought. Like just mm. going out in the summer afternoons just becomes not an option. But one distinction he said is like, he's got a bunch of kids. And so Chicago, the bad times of winter are like New York or other places, yeah. but kids are in school. So you can't flee. But actually in Austin, kids are out of school for the summer. So most people yeah. leave and like go somewhere else. So that was kind of cool. He was saying he's way happier and healthier. And he was thinking it's the sun, like he eats better. He exercises more. I've noticed this, like people are crazy fit in Austin. They're also very happy and friendly. I bet it's the sun, be my guess. It could be Texas too, though. I mean, like people say hello when they're walking down the street. There's something about Texas is known for a lot of things, being bigger, being whatever, but people have always found Texans to, to be willing to say hello. I don't know if friendly is the right word all the time, but I think it's it's the intent. They're definitely willing to talk to you and, and make eye contact and talk to anybody pretty much. Yeah. I would say very few people in Austin are like Texan. Texan, like yeah, right. Has come in the last five years from all over, like a lot of Californians. Yeah. And, but yeah, he said it's relatively easy to make friends because everyone has moved there kind of recently. And so it's like mm. that freshman year of college, first week kind of vibe. Like people are more open to making friends. He said it, it's cool to be in a growing city. Like it's way easier with the wind at your back. Like whether you buy real estate and you make like a dumb purchase or a good one, or you start a business, it's just like, well, people are growing. Everything around you growing. So you kind of look like a genius and everyone's happy and kind of making money together. So that was cool. Yeah. I mean, that was the bulk of it. The, the other sneaky thing that like, if you haven't been there before is like, there's a weird amount of water. Like there's a river that people dam up oh, yeah. in the lakes. So the riverfront is like a big thing that people walk and like work out on. Or Barton Springs is just awesome. It's this like huge public pool that's extraordinarily cold. Like if you jump in, no one reacts, but it's like 60 degrees. It's shockingly cold <laughs> if you've never done it before. Man, I, the only thing I remember that I feel like is is most like memorable in my childhood is, is did you ever see the movie Slacker? This was like a 1990 movie. It came out in the 90, early 90s and it was like independent film, but it, you got to go and see it just from mm -hmm. the sense of like seeing what I think 
Austin was kind of known for, which is maybe a little bit more Portlandy. Like the movie, it's just like these under 30 kids that they do nothing all day. They're just like, what's going on? Nothing. Listen to some music. It's just like <laughs> such a great like slice of, I guess, Gen X of like at its height of just being what people would say, oh, they're just a bunch of slackers. But it it, it was it's just a weird movie. And I, I go back to, I watched it at least like once a year, just kind of like remind myself of like, it's, I love certain movies like that, that just have that flavor. And when I went to Austin, it was nothing like that. Cause it was like, obviously this was 1990, 91 or something like that. But I think there's still a little bit of like a keep Austin weird, a little bit of like a hate Ashbury kind of vibe to that town that I think it's cool. Like that's, that's definitely on the, I live in Cleveland. Cleveland also has some funky weirdness. It's not on the scale of, of some of those towns, but it has this other sort of like je ne sais quoi of like, you can talk to anybody here. It's like people are Midwestern and weird and nuanced. So I don't know. I like smaller cities like this that have, have some funk to them. Yeah. I lived in Minneapolis for a long time. It reminds me a lot there of you that. Go. It's just the uh-huh. opposite issue hot versus cold but yeah even the neighborhoods look very similar in like how they're structured at yeah. least within the city if you get in like it's like the northwest hills it's there's like a shocking amount of money the houses are incredible it's much more like i don't know malibu or something oh, i was wow. asking about that i was thinking it's like oil money he said it's more much more tech money it's like all internet yeah. companies people moving out there there's been more of a history there i guess of tech companies as well yeah i have a an in-law who's been out there for I don't know, 20, 30 years, raised his family there, but he, he ex Harvard business guy who's been a tech CEO and they built a, it looks like a male, but a huge pool and everything. I think they, they, they seem to get out in the, in the summers as well, but you know, it, it has a great history. We were out there with the, the venture fund at some point talking to investors. So it's like, it's earned its place on the map for still being a small city, but being a, a location for capital, for investment in tech and I'd imagine that's only grown over the last five years. Yeah, it's cool. I definitely enjoy being there. So we'll see. I think there's a reasonable chance I'm living there next year, but we'll find out. See how the negotiations go. Yeah, I'm pumped. I love negotiations. I live for it. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I think that's all I got. You got anything else you want to chat? No, that's it. Cool. Yeah. We'll stay tuned. We'll find out how it goes. Yeah. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.